for continuing our uh, week-by-week study of uh, 1 Corinthians. We come today to Paul's teaching on, on how we glorify and honor God with our bodies and with our sexuality that God has created. So if this is your first Sunday with us, <laughs> you picked an awesome Sunday to come. Well, let me read the text. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul wrote, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that He who unites Himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, It is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what happened to Miley Cyrus? She kind of blew up. Uh, If if you don't know who Miley Cyrus is, uh, really don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. (laughs) But uh, you may remember her as Hannah Montana, the kind of saccharine, sweet pop star as a little teenager. But Hannah Montana has grown up, and she's now Miley Cyrus. And at the age of 20, in August, at the uh, MTV Music uh, Video Music Awards, she did this um, routine on stage, this duet. And she came out in this, this get-up that was kind of like she was just basically wearing underwear that made her look nude. And she did this dance thing on stage with, with the other 
guy there, and they basically were simulating various sex acts on stage while groping each other and blah, blah, blah. And if you haven't seen it, don't. <laughs> but, I, but, you know, I was kind of interested, and I was starting to think, what was more shocking about that? Was, it, was what she did more shocking, or was it more shocking that everybody was so shocked? I think it was more shocking that everyone was so shocked. I mean, yeah, what she did was like over the top and crazy and all that. But like, you know, in our culture, we're really stunned at this. As if what Miley Cyrus did was some radical departure from the overall sexual trajectory of our society. You know, in in our porn-saturated, sexting, um, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey hookup culture, that, that what she was doing was like, a radical departure from where everything is going. You know, I, I, you know, I think of what Miley Cyrus did on that stage. It wasn't like some crazy thing in terms of our society. It was more just kind of like a mirror. Like, hey, this is where we're at. This is where things are growing, going. We live in a sexually insane culture. We've reached a place of just sexual insanity where there are no limits, no boundaries, and... And we live there. We're, we're, we struggle with this. We live in that society as well, even as Christians. And do we ever need a word from God today about sex? Teenagers today really need to hear what God has to say about sex. Single adults today really need to hear what God has to say about sex. Married couples today really need to hear what God has to say about sexuality. And so, here it is. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, you have one of the, the, the many passages in the Bible where God deals with this topic, where God speaks to us through His servants. And here is Paul giving some basic teaching on sexuality. And he needed to because this church in Corinth was also living in a sexually insane culture. Uh, th- this was a really troubled church. It had all kinds of problems. For those of you who've been studying First Corinthians with us week after week, you know they were having fights and there were lawsuits, and it was a messed up church in a lot of ways. But but here was another challenge they faced: as they were a church situated in a sexually out of control, no holds bar kind of society in ancient Greco-Roman culture. If you were a man and you had any kinds of means at all. It was assumed, it was taken for granted that if you were a man, you'd be married, that you would be having affairs, that you would go out on the town and you would take a mistress, that you would visit prostitutes, and if you had slaves and and they were attractive, that you would be sexually active with your slaves. Those were just the assumptions of Greco-Roman culture. It was the norm. It was the way everything was. Not to mention the port city of Corinth where all the sailors came and where prostitution was a, a big part of the society. And so here's Paul. He's writing to these Christians who just a few years earlier were not Christians and had been living in this culture. And now it's just three or four years later after they've become Christians, he's writing this letter. And, and so they're still wrestling with that whole society in which they live. They've changed, but their society hasn't. And, and so they have a different calling upon them. And so Paul speaks this word about sex to the Corinthians to give them guidance and wisdom. And I just think it's so helpful for us today. I, I, I find 
such a resonance between our day to day and ours. You know, cultures change and, and civilizations change, and yet at the spiritual level, there is something consistent across human experience spiritually. And here it is. And so Paul wants to give us two basic teachings on sex today. I want to give you from this text two basic instructions, two basic things you should know. Think of these as kind of the guardrails, these two teachings and instructions that Paul wants to give. And they're there to keep us on track without going off into the ditch or veering off one side or the other. And one of them, the first one I'm going to show you is kind of negative. It's sort of a don't do this. And the other one is a positive. Instead, it's kind of like, do this. But, but I want to show them to you. And the first one, the negative one, is in chapter 6, verse 18. So here's the first thing that God wants to say to us this morning about sexuality. And there in verse 18, he, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. That's number one. Flee from sexual immorality. Okay, what is sexual immorality? What, what does that mean? Uh, we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but let me just um, cover it again. Sexual immorality, it's, it's a Greek word, porneia, from which we get various English words. And, and the word is kind of a blanket term in the New Testament that's used to describe any sexual activity outside of marriage. So sexual activity outside of marriage is described in the New Testament by Jesus and by Paul as porneia, as sexual immorality. And by marriage, of course, what we mean by that is a man and a woman. We should probably define that too today. That, that that's what the Bible means by marriage. That's what all human societies have always meant by marriage until very recently. But Paul is saying that, that, that sexual immorality is something we should flee from. Or as one commentator put it that I read, and I thought this was helpful, he said, there's two, two types of sex in the Bible. There's sex within marriage, and then there's sexual immorality. God made sex. Isn't that cool? God invented it. God created it. And God also created marriage. And God gave them to us as human beings as a package deal. So, so that what sexual intercourse is supposed to be, this is the way God designed it anyway, is it's kind of like the physical enactment of the emotional, spiritual, relational commitment in marriage. That that, that deep, profound commitment that two people make to each other in marriage is then dramatized and lived out through sex. And so they're supposed to be mutually enforcing and supporting one another. That was God's original design. So when we take sex out of marriage and we hijack it and use it for our own purposes and our own needs, we're, we're taking something that God has created and using it for our own purposes. That's what makes it immoral. That's what makes it a sin. Is because we're kind of thumbing our nose at God and saying, well, we'll do what we want, thank you very much. And you, you don't exist anyway and we just evolved and this is just part of our evolution. And God's like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know I didn't exist. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Um, Thanks for telling me. Poof, God's gone. It's not that easy. So that's sexual immorality. And what does Paul say we should do, verse 18, with sexual immorality? Flee. That's a great word, isn't it? That's a very intense word. Flee. Reminds me of Gandalf the Grey. Fly, you fools. Flee. Run for it. No, don't flirt with it. 
flee. Don't fiddle with it. Flee. Don't see how close you can get to the edge without going over and, you know, holding on. Flee. Flee is what you do when your house is on fire. Flee is what you do if you're in a grocery store and some crazy person starts waving a gun around. Flee is what you do if you're in your front yard looking down the street and you see some guy walking a pit bull that gets loose and starts charging you. (laughs) Flee. Run from sexual immorality. Why should we flee from sexual immorality? What, okay, why, Paul? That's, that's a little intense. What are the reasons? Well, that's what the rest of chapter 6, verses 12 to 20 is about. It, it's, it's a series of arguments and reasons for why we should flee from sexual immorality in our lives. And, and what I find interesting is we're going to cover these, and uh, let's walk you through it. I, I see basically three arguments here for why to flee sexual immorality. But what I find so interesting is that, that none of the arguments are merely practical arguments. You know, a lot of times when, when we're trying to encourage, say, you know, if, if, if I'm going to the youth group and I'm doing a talk on abstinence and fleeing sexual immorality, a lot of times, you know, you go to the practical things like flee sexual immorality because you don't want to get an STD. You know, or flee sexual immorality because... Of, of unplanned pregnancies and, the, and just the responsibility of that and then the temptation to go abort the child and, you know, cover a sin with a greater sin and all that stuff. And, or, or, you know, flee sexual immorality because of the emotional damage that casual sexual relationships have on a soul over, over time. So all of those are real good arguments for why not to commit sexual immorality. But those are none of the arguments Paul uses. Instead, he wants to give us theological, spiritual arguments. It's fascinating. So here in verses 12 to 20 are three theological or spiritual arguments for fleeing sexual morality. Here's number one. Number one, it's in verses 12 to 14. And I'll put it this way. God has big plans for your body. God's got big plans for your body. One of the problems with the Corinthians is they were downplaying the body. Like, eh, chill out. It's just physical. It's just the body. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There's no just the body. God owns your body, and he's got plans for your body. Again, look at verse 12 where we started. Now, you notice there in the beginning of verse 12 where it says, everything is permissible, then it's in quotes. And then he says, but not everything is beneficial. I think this is a really good translation because what appears to be happening in this letter is that Paul is quoting the Corinthians or quoting conventional wisdom and then he's rebutting it with his own comment. So everything is permissible. You know, that's what people say. Maybe that's what the Corinthians are saying. But here's how you should really think about it. So it's three quotes and three rebuttals. So first, everything is permissible. I mean, come on. This is normal. Everybody does this. This is how the world is. Wake up. Join reality here. And Paul says, okay, yeah, it may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Doesn't mean it's good for you. Just because it's legal or accepted doesn't mean it's good. There's a difference between moral and legal. Sometimes those overlap, and sometimes they're very different things. And so he quotes them again. Everything is permissible for me. Ah, but I will not be mastered by anything. One of the, the things about our sexuality, is, and I've said this in other contexts, but sex is like a nuclear power within our hearts. 
And if it's not used for God's glory, it just rolls over us. It, it is so powerful. Um, you, you know, it, it masters us quickly. Sex masters us. Uh, that, that's why pornography is so addictive. You read studies about pornography and, you know, neurochemists have studied the effects of pornography on the brain and it, it literally rewires the brain the same way that, that narcotics do. It actually re-changes the neural pathways and the pleasure sensors of the brain. It is literally addictive and it masters us. Uh, we're mastered by by thoughts you, you know you're in school and you're thinking about somebody or you're in the workplace and you you start fantasizing about somebody those thoughts aren't something you can just turn on and off once you get down that trail it starts building a kind of momentum in your mind there is a real thing called sexual addiction because of this powerful force within us it can easily master us and if we're christians we have one master he's the lord he's lord we have one lord and he does not share lordship. He's not in a parliament. He's the king. And so the Lord rules and the Lord reigns. So yeah, everything may be permissible as far as society is concerned. I'm not going to be mastered. Number three, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Do you get that one? It's like food for the stomach and the stomach for food, if you know what I mean. It's kind of a euphemism here for sex. It's like, yeah, it's just physical. It's just natural appetites that we all have. We're just fulfilling normal human appetites. Let's not get all puritanical here. And Paul's like, okay, yeah, but what does he say? God will destroy them both. In other words, what that means is there's no such thing as just physical or just this or just that. We live our entire lives under the view of God. He's your maker. He's my maker. God has total claim upon our lives. God has total rights over us. He's the king. He made you. You belong to him. And and if you buck that, you're rebelling against the one who made you. And God will destroy and judge And then I love what he says here. The body, again in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You know, why did God create us as sexual beings? And our first response might be, well, for sex. No. That's the second reason God made us as sexual beings is for sex. The first reason God made us as sexual beings is for his glory. For him to be lifted up. And so my body is first and foremost for him. How much more so for us as Christians? Because God has good plans for our bodies. Look at verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Your body matters. It's not just physical. It is something that Christ died to redeem. God is going to raise your body from the dead. So what you do with your body and how you handle your body, it matters to God. God has big plans for our bodies. Let's not be kind of Christian Gnostics. You know, Gnosticism, that Greek sort of philosophy that the, the spiritual world is good and the physical world is, doesn't really matter and it's bad. And we can think that way as Christians sometimes. But we need to realize that our bodies matter and how we use them for God's glory matters. So that's the first reason to flee sexual immorality because God has big plans for our bodies. 
Our bodies matter to him. Here's the second reason to flee sexual immorality, and, and this kind of takes it to the next step. Not only do our bodies matter, but our bodies are members of Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Not just as a Christian, you're a member of Christ. Not just that your heart belongs to Jesus. But if you're a Christian, even this thing, this body, is united to Christ. And Christ will raise it from the dead. And we don't often think that physically. But that's how it is. Our bodies are members of Jesus himself. Uh, that's powerful. Th- that means that, that our Christian relationship is about this connection with Jesus and, and we're united to him. It's kind of like we're married to Jesus. Just as a husband and a wife become one flesh and they're, they're members of one another, it's that same kind of image except in some spiritual way we've become members with Christ. Theologians call this the doctrine of union with Christ, which is just a, a very interesting theme to study throughout the, the Bible. But we're united with Christ. We're one with him. And, and even our bodies belong to Christ. It's, it's like marriage. And, and I think that's important, and I, I really want to stress that because uh, one of my fears in preaching this sermon, okay, I have a lot of fears in preaching this sermon, but one of my big fears, honestly, was I was afraid that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, some of you may be here and you would say, I'm not a Christian. That's not how I'd consider myself. What, one of my fears was that you would hear this sermon and that the message you'd be getting is that Christianity is about a bunch of rules that are repressive and, and stuffy. And, you know, that's what Christianity is. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Have a happy life. And you go, thanks. I've got all these rules I have to follow. And you're like, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. I just don't want to have a bunch of rules bogging me down. And, and I just want to tell you that the essence of Christianity is not rules. It's this relationship with the Lord Jesus. That to be a Christian is like being married. It's to have that intimacy, that trust, that love, that that dependence upon the Lord. So whether you're a male or a female, whether you're single or married, if you're a Christian, you're married to Christ. And and we have that intimacy and trust and love and union with Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And so, of course, as as someone who loves Christ, I don't want to do things that sin against Christ. But it's not because I'm trying to, like, check all the rules off. It's because I love him. It's like my own, my own marriage with my wife. Uh, Jennifer and I have been married over 20 years, and we love each other, and you know, we, we don't commit adultery. But why? Just because it's a rule in the Ten Commandments? Well, that's one reason, but that's not the only reason. The, the thing that drives me every day not to commit adultery is, I love my wife. I love her. And she loves me. Why would we hurt each other like that? I wouldn't want to do that. And so, yeah, there's rules, but... But the, the, the driving force is that relationship. That's what it's like to be a Christian is I love Christ. You know, and every loving relationship has boundaries. We have this idea, you know, if you love someone, you let them do whatever they want. No, you don't. When? That's never how it works. When you love someone, when you commit to someone, it always creates boundaries. Of things, you know, when, when you love, when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to sin. If you say yes to sin, you're saying no to Jesus. If I say yes to my wife, I'm saying no to the rest of the female population of the planet. Right? It's just how it goes. Relationships have boundaries. It's normal. It's the way relationships work. 
It's part of love. So we love Christ. We're members. Our bodies belong to him. Not just our hearts, but our bodies. The bodies he's going to raise someday. So the logic, verse 6, 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ? This, this is Jesus's now. It's connected to him, this body. And shall I unite this body with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. That sex is a profoundly deep physical union, an emotional and life union with another person. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You know, if, if, it's just crazy under this way of thinking to think of committing sexual immorality. Why, if I'm a member of Christ, whether you're single or married, why would you do something with Christ's body? You know, again, it, it, you know, what are we going to say? Well, Jesus is just physical? I mean, come on. Like, like if I were to come home one day and I were to say to my wife, you know, she were to say to me, hey, what would you do today? I said, oh, pretty good day. Uh, I met a prostitute. Paid for services. Slept with a prostitute. And she said, that's not even funny. And I said, I'm not joking. But don't, don't get all bent out of shape. It's just physical. It's just the body. Well, come on. You're getting all puritanical on me. You know, if I said that to my wife, like, how would she respond? Like, what would she do? I'd probably hear this noise. You know, it's like. (laughs) Why is it any different with the Lord? If I'm married to the Lord, who has so much more of a claim upon me. That's why Paul says, never, in verse 15. That's crazy. So flee sexual immorality because God has such big plans for your body, not just your heart, your body. And flee sexual immorality because your body, not just your heart, your body is united to Christ. You belong to him as Christians. And then a third reason to flee sexual immorality is because your body as a Christian is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just that in Christ I've been united to Jesus, but He's been united to me. And, and His Spirit now indwells me so that I really am the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God dwelt on earth in His temple. It was a physical building made out of bricks and mortar, and it was in Jerusalem. That's where you had to go to find the presence of God. God's presence is still upon the earth today. He still has a temple. But the crazy announcement of the New Testament is that, that we're the temple. We collectively as the church, and each of us individually as Christians, we're the place that God dwells. And so God is dwelling on earth among his people together as a local congregation, but also each of us individually are that temple. So then follow the logic, verse 18. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So sexual sin harms itself and is against itself, against the body. So that's a problem, verse 19, because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So you're sinning against the temple of God. It kind of reminds me like in the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament when um, the Israelites were worshiping in the temple and then they kind of got off the rails and they started worshiping other gods and then they would bring the worship of other gods into the temple. And so in the real low periods in Israel's history, there'd be worship of the God of Israel, then worship of Baal, all inside the temple. And the prophets would be like, whoa, this is terrible. You're, you're polluting the temple. 
Well, it's the same kind of thing. And we say, oh, those Israelites, can't believe they do that. We do that if we commit sexual immorality. We're taking the temple of the Holy Spirit as Christians and polluting it by, by taking that temple and sinning against it, just as the Israelites would sin against the temple of God in the Old Testament. So let's be holy like the temple. Let, I mean, what an amazing honor to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You think about that? God's called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just to have a relationship with Jesus, but Him to have a relationship with us by His Spirit living inside of us. So that again, the Christian life is this ongoing fellowship through the Holy Spirit with the Lord. You know, to walk daily in the Holy Spirit. It's awesome. It's awesome. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, man, you need to know Jesus. You've got to experience the Holy Spirit in your life. It's awesome. And I think it's just so helpful as we think about our sexuality and as Christians being the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, a question that, uh, that, that you sometimes get from people when they're thinking about sex as Christians, like, okay, okay, so I'm not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, but how far could I go? You know, you get that, when I've done like sex talks with our youth group, you get that question. Like, how far can you go? What's okay? And, and my response is like, that's the wrong question, man. <laughs> You're already going down the wrong street when you're asking that question. Here's the right question. How do I walk filled with the Holy Spirit? And if I'm doing whatever, am I living under the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment? Am I honoring God with my body in that moment? Am I being mastered by somebody in that moment other than the Holy Spirit? And if it's no, well then, don't you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and obedient to the Word of God? Moment by moment. Just reframe the question completely. And then he sums it all up there in verse 20, verse 19 and 20. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. I feel like that phrase, you're not your own, you're bought at a price, kind of summarizes all the reasons. Like, you know, you have a great future. Why? Because you're God's and he's going to raise you. You're, you're a member of Christ because he purchased you. You're not your own. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. And so that line at the end there, you're not your own, it summarizes the whole reason why we should flee sexual immorality because we're not our own. Christ has bought us. And at a price. What was the price? His blood shed on the cross. What an extravagant price he's paid for us. And so he says, you're not your own. So honor God with your body. Isn't that amazing to think that Jesus shed his blood to buy sexual sinners. Jesus shed his blood to buy sexual sinners like us. That's what he purchased. I, I don't know what your sexual history is. I don't know where you've been. I don't know the kind of things you've done, things that have been done to you. I don't know. But this is what I know, that the blood of Jesus purchases and washes and restores sexual sinners. That Christ does this. This is why he came to die for people like us, to save us and make us new. To take people who, who just were like, eh, it's just my body, and suddenly say, no, your body has a future at the resurrection. 
for people who say, yeah, just doing my own thing and say, no, you're a member of Christ. I'm damaged goods. I'm trash. I'm dented and ruined. No, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit now. All through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. Praise God for a Savior who spilled His blood to buy sexual sinners like us. Therefore, verse 20, honor God with your body. And that's the second rail. Honor God with your body. Teaching number one, flee sexual immorality. Kind of negative. Don't do this. Run away from it. But the positive, honor God with your body. And so if, if, if this is an area you're thinking about and you want to grow in holiness in this area, I'd encourage you, go home today, get a yellow sticky notepad, and write two sentences on it. Flee from sexual immorality, honor God with your body, and take that sticky note and put it everywhere you need to put it. Put it on your computer screen, put it on your locker, maybe the wallpaper on your smartphone. Flee from sexual immorality and honor God with your body. And that's ultimately what we were made for, is to honor God. What's the purpose of human life? It's for the Lord and the glory of God. That's why we're here on earth, is ultimately to glorify Him. Even our sexuality is ultimately for the honor and glory of God, not just for the satisfaction of ourselves. So how do you honor God with your body? Okay, so don't commit sexual immorality. Okay, got it. I need to flee from that. How do I honor God with my body? What does that look like specifically? Let's get specific. And that's what Paul does in chapter 7. And he wants to show us what honoring God with our body looks like in two circumstances. First, what honoring God with your body looks like if you're a married person. And then second, what honoring God with your body looks like if you are an unmarried or single person. What, what does it look like in each of those circumstances? So he covers marriage first. Let's look at marriage first. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. I, I don't really like that translation. If you look down in the little footnotes at the bottom, it gives an alternate translation which is much better, where it says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, and so here again, Paul is quoting the Corinthians. So this is kind of your conventional wisdom. It's good to kind of stay away from a woman. And Paul's like, I'm not saying that. And, and maybe there are even some super spiritual people in the Christian church who thought even in marriage we shouldn't be touching each other because we're so holy and above that now. He's like, no, 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 no. Verse 2, since there's so much immorality, each of you should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Verse 3, the woman should fulfill, the, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what Paul is saying here is, and I want to use a phrase, Paul is arguing that married people glorify God with their bodies through what I'm going to call marital yieldedness. Marital yieldedness. That if you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. And, and, and so you honor God, you, you glorify God with your body by giving yourself sexually to your spouse and not kind of spiritualizing your way out of it. I mean, look at this passage. It's very emphatic. Verse 3, the husband's fulfilling his duty to his wife. 
verse 4, the ownership metaphor. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to her husband. And likewise, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, to his wife. Verse 5, do not deprive each other. That word deprive is a very strong word. It means something like defraud or cheat or swindle each other. So I'm defrauding my wife if I deprive her and deny her access to my body and and likewise. That's powerfully strong language. So it's this idea, again, that in marriage we become one flesh. And that means that my body is not my own. My body belongs to the Lord. And now if I'm married, my body also belongs to my wife. And so I need to be yielded to her maritally and, and she to me. That's, that's the way Paul says it's supposed to work. So don't think you're somehow spiritually above that. You glorify God in that way. That's what you do if you're married. Now I know that as I, as I was just commenting on those verses, something just happened all over this room. All over this room. Husbands everywhere just found their new favorite verse in the Bible. Suddenly men who are kind of checked out and dragged to church by their wives are suddenly becoming expert theologians who at lunch today are going to say, let's talk about the sermon, honey. Do some exegesis into this passage. Yeah. Well, this is one of those times where it's always important to make sure that if you're going to do what the Bible says about marriage, that you study everything the Bible says about marriage and not just cherry pick one verse or the other. And yes, it says that, but you know what it also says to us husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives. Love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, meeting her needs and, and being focused on her and loving your spouse. What often happens in marriages when it comes to, to sex inside of a marriage is, is one of the challenges, this doesn't always happen, I'm generalizing a little bit, but there's often this dynamic that happens, very common, where, where the husband is wanting more sex, and so he's, he's trying to figure out what the formula is to get it. What do I need to do? And the wife feels that pressure, but maybe she doesn't have the same you know, level of appetite, and so she understands that, so she kind of holds on to that, as a negotiating piece to figure out how to get what she wants out of the relationship so that, it, so that there becomes this kind of quiet, passive-aggressive sort of negotiation shell game where you're, you're trying to, you know, play each other. Uh, it, it's been said, again, this is a generalization. It's not always true that men often use relationship to get sex and women use sex to get relationship. How do you get out of that trap if you do find yourself in that trap? And I think the answer is, you've got to come back to the Lord Jesus and say, okay, let's put it, put it all aside. Start with square one. My body belongs to the Lord. And I belong to my spouse. And I love her. I love her. And I want to give myself to her. And I want to meet her needs. If, if I'm really loving her, th- then I need to find out what her needs are. Okay, she needs my body. Oh, yay. But you know what? There's other parts of my body she needs, like these you know, my ears, and she needs my eyes to be focused on her and not looking at, you know, other things and other women, and she needs my hands, not necessarily on her at the moment, but in the sink, washing the dishes. She needs my body, but in a lot of ways, and if I'm really saying I'm not my own anymore, I belong to Christ, 
and I want to love her the way that Christ loved me, then my body is going to be hers in all the ways that she needs, not just what I want her to need or whatever. And likewise, wives, to, to, to respond to your husband by whatever his needs are. and Maybe he needs someone to listen or maybe he does have a greater sexual appetite, whatever. But when you're looking at Christ and you're looking at honoring him and loving each other and not trying to play a game with each other, you just get rid of that whole stupid game and be free for each other and be able to give each other whatever you need to offer yourselves to each other so that God may be glorified. And so, so honor God with your bodies, married couples, through marital yieldedness on both sides and everything that that implies. But what about if you're not married? What if you are single or widowed or divorced or what if you're a teenager or a college student, you've never been married before. What, what, what about that? How, how do you honor God with your body as a single, unmarried person? And, and if the answer for married couples is marital yieldedness, the answer for, that it seems Paul to be saying here for single people is what, what I'm going to call celibate singleness. Celibate singleness. I know that when I said that, a thought went out all over this room too. <laughs> Where single people are like, wow, celibacy. And then I want to be clear. When I say celibate, I'm not talking about a vow of celibacy. I'm not talking about like priests and nuns who commit themselves to a life of celibacy. I'm just saying for however long you're single, however long that season is in your life by God's, in God's plan, to honor God with your body by saying that my sexuality is for the glory of God. And it's for honoring God in what, everything that I do. And if he has me married someday, then it's for that person. If not, then I want to honor him. And I know we read that and we just think, oh, that's so mean. Oh, those poor single people. Oh, it must be so tough. We really we've got to pray for them. You know, we get that attitude. That's totally not how Paul sees it. Paul's got the other attitude. Paul's like, oh, those poor married people. They don't got enough self-control. I wish they were single like me and could like just live for God, but you know they're like sex obsessed. So go ahead, get married, right? I mean, isn't that what he says? He has the totally opposite attitude. Again, look at verse six. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were like as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, and there's that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. That's what you should prefer. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And, and we'll see this in a couple weeks because at the end of chapter 7, we're going to deal with singleness. And I am telling you, Paul's vision for singleness is just going to blow you up. It is radically different than what, the way we typically talk about marriage and singleness, even in the evangelical church. The evangelical church in America has got singleness completely unbiblically wrong. And it, it, we're going to be really challenged by that. But here, that's a little foretaste of it right there, where Paul's like, yeah, singleness and celibacy is awesome. I can serve Jesus without any distraction. It's great. Here's the thing about sex. Sex is not a need. Isn't that weird? It's not a need. It's a desire. 
It's a wicked strong desire. It's a wicked strong desire hardwired into us by our Creator. It's a wicked strong desire hardwired into us by our Creator that has been hijacked by sin to make it even stronger in some ways and harder to, to fight against in a godly way. But at the end of the day, it's not a need. Water is a need. Air is a need. Food is a need. Shelter is a need. Sex is not a need. You can have a happy, fulfilled, sane, emotionally stable, rich, um, good, relationally intimate life with people without sex. Having sex is not the same thing as loving and being in relationship necessarily. They, they can overlap in marriage, but they're not necessarily. And so you, you can be a full-blooded male and be celibate and single. You can be a true female from the top of your head to the soles of your feet and be celibate and single. Because what it means to be a person is not determined by whether or not you have sex or having sex. That, that it is about glorifying God with your body in whatever circumstances he puts you. Sex is not a need. It's a wonderful thing you, given to us by God, but it's not a need. And I just say that as a word of encouragement to, uh, to, to people here who, who maybe are single and are struggling with that. And you say, yeah, but I still would like to be married. And yeah, I, you know, sometimes God calls us to these seasons in life and they're very difficult. But I just want you to be encouraged too that you're not in some weird holding pattern waiting for your real life to start when you get married. Like we just gotta, we gotta drop kick that idea out of the church because it's not biblical. God has a purpose for you and you can be happy even without sex. You know, for every single person who sits down across the table from me saying like, oh, I just want to get married. It's so hard. I sit across the table from married people. I say, oh, wouldn't it be cool to be single again? You know, it's the screen door. The flies on the outside want in and the flies on the inside want out. So let's not make it as if sex is the answer to our happiness, which is what our culture says. It's not. It can be a wonderful thing when used God's way. It can be a very destructive thing when not used God's way. It's a great word here, too, for those of you. You know, I, I was thinking just kind of a further application of this. Some of you may be here in the church. You may be Christians. You may be members of our church. And, and maybe you're single or, or whatever, and you, you struggle with sexual desire. But what if, what if the desire you struggle with is towards somebody of the same sex? What if you have same-sex attraction and you look in the Bible and you know that, that God does not call us or permit us to homosexual activity, that that's sin in God's eyes? And yet you say, but I have these desires and I, I know I'm not supposed to act on them, but I can't change what I'm feeling. What do you do with that? And may I suggest that, that the church is God's answer. That this is a place to have real, deep, intimate friendships and fellowships of a non-sexual nature. The church ought to be a place where we as brothers and sisters in Christ can have all kinds of real, deep, intimate relationships with each other that don't have to be sexual. And, and, and so if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you remember the church, you're like, I could never tell anybody this. Gosh, I hope not. I hope you could tell somebody. Some people you trust and say, yeah, this is where I'm at. And I hope that we would say, okay, well, welcome to the struggle. We're down with the struggle with you. 
So like stand with us and, and we're going to be your friend. And there's all kinds of intimacy and friendship that we can have while still honoring God with our bodies. May the church be that place where, where even those who are single and, and whatever find that deep intimacy and friendship within the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be sexual to be love. It doesn't have to be sexual to be intimate. All of us then need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's the only way I know forward here. We've got to come back to that honoring God with our bodies. How, how do you do this if you're single? How do you do this if you're married? We have all these struggles. It starts by putting our eyes on Christ. Our sexual desire is so strong that the only way to combat it and to channel it and to use it is by replacing it with a greater desire, which is a relationship with Christ. And so everybody, whether you're single or married, whether you're a teenager or an older widow, all of us have to come to God's Word daily and have that intimate walk with the Lord. We have to foster that relationship with Christ and know Him. Just like in any relationship, it takes daily, regular time with the Lord. And then it's gathering regularly with His people and walking in fellowship together as a community, as a body. And it's only as we daily seek the Lord that we will have His Spirit within us that will keep pulling us toward holiness and godliness, to honor God with our bodies, regardless of what our particular challenge is in that area. And so, brothers and sisters, let's put our hope in the Lord. Let's find our satisfaction and joy in Christ. Married, single, whatever you are, let's find our unity in Christ and deep fellowship and intimacy in Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we worship You and we pause to just acknowledge this morning that You're our Creator. You're holy. You have total claim upon us. And God, we confess this morning that our bodies and even our sexuality is Yours. You have total claim upon it. Lord, forgive us for hijacking what is Yours and using it as if we were our own gods. And Lord, I pray that You would just let Jesus and His death for us sparkle and cause us to be filled with wonder and, and awe at Him so that, Lord, we might have strength to resist sexual immorality in all the ways that it assaults our hearts and our bodies. God, I pray for married couples in this church that their hearts would be open to one another. I pray for married couples that have reached a kind of um, gridlock in their marriage. That, Lord, they would soften their hearts and cry out to You and let the Gospel allow them to forgive each other. And, Lord, that sex might return to its proper place within that marriage. God, I pray for single brothers and sisters here that You would give them grace to honor You with their bodies for for the season of their singleness, however long that season may be. God, I pray that they would delight in Christ even more than delighting in the thought of marriage and sex. And God, I pray that honoring Christ would be their utmost desire. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who may struggle with same-sex attraction. I pray that we would be the church family that wouldn't necessarily be open and affirming, but would be truthful and loving. And that we would love each other. And we'd be a place where people can form real, intimate relationships that are godly and Christ-centered and Christ-honoring. So Lord, help us to be that church. Help us to be a real community of deep fellowship. Lord, draw us closer to You and closer to one another, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.